The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Philippians chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there, we're going to pick up there in just a moment, Philippians chapter 2. It'll sound like a broken record, but keeping in mind that the book of Philippians, and any other book for that matter, matter, uh, has various and uh, different divisions in it, at least tools that you can use to assist you in your studies. And in the case of the section that we're in right now, it basically goes from chapter 1, verse 27, on into chapter 2 and verse 11. That's kind of one section. Uh, if you want to put a heading above all of that, and you may have different headings in your Bible than this, but in general, chapter 1 and verse 27 through chapter 2 and verse 11 are talking about unity and the ability that we have as humans to be unified if we allow the deity of God to come into us. And I don't mean anything miraculous by that, but just the fact that if we have to live Christ-like lives, and uh, when we do that, then we will have the ability to have unity not only among ourselves, but most importantly, we'll have the ability to have unity with God. And that's, of course, what our goal is, what we strive for, and such as that. And I may have said this last week. I don't know. I probably said it Sunday in a whole different place, hour away from here or so. But one of the things you can know about this section is that in the absence of humility, there cannot be unity. And there cannot be humility without Christ or without deity, God, in that. So in the absence of humility, you cannot have unity. And the main reason I say that is because a part of this, if you want to subsection chapter 1 verse 27 through 2 verse 11 if you want to subsection that out a little bit we are in the middle of a section that talks about the humility of Christ Christ in humanity lowered himself to humility and allowed himself to show us as deity what we need for unity and I don't know if you heard all those et why I can't say them again myself I made that up as I went but nonetheless that's what's present here in the section we're in. Now we've gotten down through chapter 2. Basically we're in the middle of verse 5 slash 6 ish, but we'll start reading there again in verse 1. He said, For, uh, or if there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any of the bowels of mercy, fulfill ye, Paul says, my joy that ye be like minded, having the same love being of one accord and of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing, he says, be done for strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than themselves. How is that possible? Verse 4 explains. He says, look not every man on his own things, but, it, but, every, man also, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion, verse 8, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we'll back up just a little bit there, keeping in mind that as he's setting us up to allow us to know how to be humble, if you will, 
in order to gain that unity, he's going to show us that by that example of deity, which, of course, in this case is Christ. And if you want to put down some divine commentary for this, I may have said this as well, but you can really draw an arrow back here from what we're reading in Philippians chapter 2 back to John 13, the latter portion of that at least, when you find Christ there kneeling down or bowing down to his disciples and washing their feet because he was showing them what humility looked like. He humbled himself completely to that actual duty, if you will, of a servant during that account. And he in turn told his disciples that's what he was trying to teach. That's what he was trying to get across. That's what he wanted them to know. And so there's some divine commentary found back over in that. Now, in verse 5 kind of starts this subsection, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he says, let. And I, I probably told you back in verse 3 at least, when you see the word let right here, it's not a matter of giving permission to, really. It's not a matter of if you decide maybe might, I might. It's a matter of Paul giving a command. Of course, Paul is writing this. His pen, at least, is writing such. But remember, all these commands are coming from God. And so God is letting them know through that pen of Paul, by the inspiration he gives them, that this is the mind that must be present in them. This is the mind that was and is present in, in Jesus as he was the very Son of God and as he lived on, on this earth in humility and humanity. So he said he was being in the form of God and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If you go into examining that word form, it comes from a Greek word that looks like murph. Well, I don't look like what I just about said. It looks like mufo. I can't even get it out now. Mufo. It's a, uh, the root of the word that we exchange in our English for the word metamorphosis. And the idea is there that what you see in the form you're looking at right now is actually the thing that's been there all the while. And I know there can be some debate about this, but at least from my understanding of it, you step back. And if you think about the times that we learned about, I'm talking about me across the road there, about metamorphosis, oftentimes the main example that we could see was actually a caterpillar turning to a butterfly. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure at that point in time, we probably in the classroom had caterpillars that went about, made their cocoons or whatever it is you call the whatever for the malls, but caterpillars who made their cocoons, they went in there, they stayed in there for a period of time, and then before you know it, out popped a butterfly. And the question could be asked about that, you know, where did the butterfly come from? Well, the butterfly was in the caterpillar. You say, no, that's a caterpillar, that's a butterfly. How are those things related? The butterfly was in the caterpillar all the while. And even though, and we're going to see this in just a moment in two more words, even though those men, I mean by that the apostles, any of us, if we had been alive at that time as well, even though those men looked at Jesus and saw in some senses a form of a man, on the inside he was always God. But at the same time, interestingly enough, and for full explanation, Ron will be glad to tell you all about it after services. Interestingly enough, at the same time he was fully God, he was fully man. 
course, we understand that as Bible students. I don't say we understand it. We know that as Bible students. We've heard of that before. But that's what's actually being spoken of here. And so he says of Jesus here, remember, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, the morphe or morphu of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, that most translations, and I checked through as many as I could scan through really quick uh, later on this afternoon as well, looking back at it. Most translations basically did what the King James translators did and I couldn't explain it because I wasn't there watching them attempt to make the translation. But it's almost like they, they went about, they kind of said, eh, maybe this will work, maybe somebody will understand it, and they dropped back. And then translators from King James Version 1611, all of its reiterations and all the translations that come later, most of them stepped back and said, eh, we really don't know what to do with either, so we'll just write what they did. Thought it not robbery to be equal to God. Some translations, and they are few, in more modern translations say something to the effect of him being in the form of God thought it, not, thought it not a thing to be grasped to be equal with God. Now, how should or could we understand that? From my personal judgment, my understanding of that is basically even though he was fully God, inside of a fully man person, obviously, he had the access to all of God's authority, all of God's power, all of God's will, all of God's word, and all of and all of and all of. But when he had that power within him to use, he did not abuse. He didn't think about what he had in him as God that, as something that he would use for his benefit in the moment. You say, well, he did all those miracles, you know, and that drew attention to him. Yes, but his intent every time he did those miracles, as he even stated, was not to bring attention to him, but ultimately to bring glory to God. And through all of those miracles that you read of, and depending on who you ask, there's somewhere between 32, maybe 36, so maybe you could pick 34, but 32 to 36 miracles recorded in the New Testament. Out of all of those miracles, in every occasion, whether stated or not, his ultimate goal was to do this miracle, to catch men's, for lack of a better term, attention, and all the while pointing them to no other source than God. And later on, as his disciples, his apostles, began to have some of those same abilities because he gave them those abilities. I think of Peter and John. Uh, you know, they come out and they heal people, and oftentimes it's like, wow, look what they did. Look at the power these men possessed. They said, oh, no. No, no, no. I, I would have no power save God. And they would reflect on that as well. One of the ways that I think this might be exemplified, at least in Scripture, is making a comparison between what Adam tried to access and what he thought about such and then what Christ had access to and how he used it. You say, how is that? What was it that Satan at least promised to Adam and Eve in the garden? You'll be like God. You take this, you go ahead and eat of it. God just knows. God knows exactly what's going to happen. Now, whether or not Satan knew what he was talking about, we're quoting him, we're not quoting God. But recorded in Scripture, he thought, or he told them at least, 
to think if you eat this, we call it the forbidden fruit, if you'll eat that forbidden fruit, you'll be just like God. And in essence, once that argument was made, it was good enough for them. Whatever their intentions were, how far they thought that would go, what the possibilities might be, I can't tell. But Adam reached that and he grasped after that. Now Jesus in turn, all these whiles later, comes to earth in human form, God in a body. He has everything that is God within him, at least access to it. And he never uses it to his advantage. There's another New Testament character, however, that saw some of the power of God, not all of it, but some of the power of God, and he wanted to grasp it. Who might that be? Yeah. Simon, we call him Simon the Sorcerer. He sees miracles being performed, and he sees that, and he thinks, hey, 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 I could take advantage of that. I could, using this speech, I could rob that gift and use it for my profit. Never what Jesus does. Jesus thought it not, newer translations, a thing to be grasped. He didn't think of it to be something that was a personal advantage to him. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. How would you use the word equal? If you say something is equal, and Coach Stevens will be our assistant in this in a moment, it means same. It in no wise, you can't say, well, five is equal to six. Why not? Because it ain't so. Neither is six equal to seven or 6.1 equal to six, or, you know, just using numbers for that example. If something is equal, there is a huge level, if not altogether level, of sameness. As a matter of fact, the word that we're looking at here for equal, if you spell it out in the English language, taking it from the Greek one in which it was originally written, spell it out in letters, if you will, it comes out spelling this way, I-S-O-S, which is where we get our thought process for the isosceles triangle. I didn't learn that across the road. I learned it by looking it up in the last few weeks. I should have learned it across the road. What is an isosceles triangle supposed to be? Two sides. The standard rule is there's two sides that are absolutely equal. Okay, well you say, well that's about to blow your illustration, right? No, because it can also include a three-sided triangle, wherein all three sides are exactly equal. As a matter of fact, there's another word that in, in, in our learning process is the same or much like so, and it's what's known as an equilateral triangle. Same, 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 all the way through. And so the word here that God chose to put upon the paper through the pen of Paul, is a word that in every case would say to the Greek listener and the Greek student, this is the same. Somebody says, well, he's a much like God. He's an awful lot like God, but no buts in this. He is everything of God. He had the access to it. Yes, sir. A couple of different versions. One of them says, who existing in the form of God, 
exploit it. Very, like take advantage of, to exploit it. That's right. Very good. But here we have God in the body who being made, or in, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, how does he explain that farther? Verse 7 tells us. But, in contrast, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Now, is there anything familiar about the word form in verse 6 back to verse and on to verse 7? Well, you say, yeah, they're spelled exactly the same. That's right. In the Greek, they're spelled exactly the same. And so him being the morphe of God, you would call that the sameness of God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal, same with God. So he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form, the morphe of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now the word form in verse 5 the word form, I'm sorry, the word form in verse 6, the word form in verse 7, and the word likeness in verse 7 are comparable about like twin brothers. Are twin brothers the same person? No. But they can certainly share a lot of characteristics. And the reason that matters, and the next verse is going to expound on it a little bit more is, is he's making a distinction here with the wording, the Greek words and the English words are the same, that he's in the form of God, he's equal. He made himself in the form of a servant. This, is, this right here blew my mind, that doesn't take much. How was that done? By making him in the likeness similar to a man. Hold up. He was every bit God, and he was every bit a servant, but he looked like a man. Yeah. The hidden gem behind this, for me at least, is that that tells us that God, in some senses, brought Jesus down to be nothing more than a servant. Now, he, he illustrated that, as I mentioned early on, John 13 and such, but the whole while... He brought out what was already there for him, and that was to be a servant. You say, well, if I was God, I wouldn't serve anybody. You wouldn't have to. Exactly. He came as humanity in a form that would not have been expected of a God-man. That's right. Preceding context, uh, just read, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not, who, who Jesus in the form of God had thought it not robbed to be, God, but made himself of no reputation and put on the form of, 
of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That is, he took his godliness and in some senses laid it down on the floor with him while he was washing those feet. He didn't lay it aside. He didn't take it off. He didn't remove his, his deity and all of that. But he took that deity and allowed it to go as low as man could see it and still serve and still took their attention and still done something that was probably unexpected. Look at verse 8. It expands a little bit more. And being found in the fashion as a man, very similar to form, very similar to form, very similar to uh, likeness, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, that word fashion right there is a Greek word schema. And we're going to move from Coach Stevens over to Daddy. What is this schematic? It's a drawing that is a resident, representative map of what's inside. And a good schematic, and I've seen him do this through the years, working on different, uh, you know, electronics and such. A good schematic, when you open that electronic up, like a TV, when you open that up, you find exactly what's on the schematic. Now, you've got to know how to read it. You've got to know how to interpret it. But you find exactly everything in place as it's assumed to be by the representative drawing or map of what's on the inside. So well, how does that apply in this? Because we've got Jesus who was God but yet was in the form of a man. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant. In doing so, he looked like a man. In doing that, he was being found in the fashion as a man. So if somebody says, wait a minute, what does God look like? Well, for them, what God looked like was that man right there. Now, that's looking for the outside. That's looking at just what they saw on the surface. What was on the inside of him was, of course, probably different than they expected at times. But that's what he was. Go tell no one. And he did that often with his miracles. He rarely uh, sent people to go and repeat those things. Of course, they often always did just about. But that was not him trying to gain his own advantage or reputation and such. So it was found in the fashion of a man. Another way to compare these two words, I don't know if this really relates to it as well as, you know, to explain it as much. But when a baby is born, the baby is human. And for as long as it lives, well, that's a few days, months, years, decades, century or more. No longer as that baby lives, it will always be still a human. But as it lives, it will change, right? Very few rare, rare cases do you see someone who's 50, 60, 70 years old still be cute and cuddly with no wrinkles and weigh about seven or eight pounds. I mean, there's some genetic stuff I know we see on TV where somebody didn't seem to age 
you know, properly or they didn't grow properly. But that's not the, that's not the standard. And so as you see changes and developments in a human and its growth and its aging and its maturity, it never loses what it has always been and will always be, and that is human. Time won't change it, and time hasn't changed God. It hasn't changed and did not change who Jesus was. Now, according to our mathematical equations, Jesus lived on earth roughly, take and give a few months, 33 years. And during that time, he came to earth in human form, but at the same time came in the form of God. So he was his schema changed. The schematics of who he was changed in advance. He was not the same as an infant as he would be at 12 years old, nor as he would be at 30 years old. But yet in the same place, he was always God. So he made himself of no reputation. Being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The only way to really see that is to see it exactly as the apostles presenting it here. And that is he had the advantage, he had the opportunity but he let go of all that and became as us. He's the picture of humility. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now, what was so different about the death of the cross and the death that any other man would die? We see it as the most cruel, inhumane, um, vicious, evil, I couldn't hear your word, but degrading, humiliating death that any man could ever go through or process of death that any man could ever enter into. That's the way it's been recognized. That's the way it was seen. Why did the Jews want him crucified so bad? I mean, just, there's really no wrong answer as a student of the Bible. What all happened? He was blowing apart, that's one way of putting it, he was blowing apart everything that they thought, not only about God, but especially by that point, as pride had probably overcome the majority, at least of the chief priests and the, the, you know, those folks, uh, what they thought their service to God all looked like. He blew that apart. They weren't there, those men weren't there to be servants to anyone. They were using God at their advantage. What else? They wanted him killed. Yeah, they, they wanted to put down whatever movement he was involved in, at least so they thought. He didn't know they were moving in the same direction if they were willing to get on the train. Why did they want him crucified? Why not kill him? Just kill him, just regular old kill him. We got a little bit of insight into it. The lingering, the humility, all that came with the cross itself, came with crucifixion itself. Instead of being a king, he suffered the death of all. Absolutely true. I mean, it was, uh, you know, a uh, week or two ago, the traditional Easter weekend or something like that. Uh, many set aside, commemorate the, 
death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, my family did uh, during that period of time, just kind of get our minds settled and set, just to think about it like we would any other day. But we watched The Passion of the Christ again, that 2011 movie. I forgot about that. It's, it's rough. The movie is, anyway. And I'm sure that it was worse in, in person. Tough stuff. In the Old Testament, someone being crucified, referred to as hanged on a tree, what would that do to someone? There we go. That's what I'm getting to with all that. Galatians 3.13 is New Testament's account of what is written in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, which speaks about someone being cursed or accursed who's being hanged on a tree. Jesus was accused of several things by the hierarchy of the Jews during those trials that he went through, those kangaroo courts he endured all night and on in the morning. And among that, one of the things he was accused of, which seemed to, not that it stuck to him, but in their minds they kept coming back to, was they claimed he had blasphemed God. That's what they said. That's what they thought. He's made himself equal with God. We don't agree with it. Therefore, he's blaspheming the name of God. He needs to be put to death. And I've always understood that from the perspective of, well, he had to be put to death so the only way to get him put to death and the way that they wanted was to go to the Romans and get that done. They had other options. A man who was accused of blasphemy, even in the time. Now, keep in mind, they're still living under the old law. All of Jesus' life, up until that cross point, they're still all living under the old law. The old law is still applying. For blaspheming God, the direct punishment to that and they had a list of things that they went by and bylaws and such of course they had added to it but the direct authoritative given punishment for that was not crucifixion but was stoning what did they do to Stephen they stoned him he basically spat in their face about the way they had treated the prophets, about the way they were living, and about the way they were ignoring the deity of Christ, he basically spat in their face with that so they would feel as if that was happening. And they stoned him immediately. They did not go to the Romans. They did not seek outside assistance. They took care of that themselves on the spot. And that wasn't rare. For them to be offended by someone in their temples or later their synagogues, the punish for, punishment for those things was immediate. And oftentimes if it was death, it was stoning. Even when Jesus received the woman, remember the woman that was brought to Jesus accused of being caught in the act of adultery, what was their intentions? Immediate stoning. But stoning wouldn't get them what they thought. Now, this is conjecture. This is my judgment. It's me standing back probably talking about something that don't matter. No, I'm talking about something I know don't matter. But they wanted Jesus dead. But more than that, they wanted Jesus to be cursed. They wanted his name to be wiped, which is the next context about his name, to be wiped from the maps of eternity and never to be seen in a good light ever again. Even among those who followed him, 
Yes, sir. Knowing that, that would have been impossible for them to do that. If they continued to apply, I mean, we couldn't prove it or, or try to prove it really, but it's probably a good guess that some of the men who brought the woman in adultery were still back now on this scene crying crucified. But they wanted him dead. And that's when I read through this, and again, read through this over and over, really over the course of several months, I kept coming back and noticing and wondering and delving into other translations and trying to see the original languages, which I'm not that good at, but trying to examine that. And I kept coming back and saying, why is it? And I think, I know God is all purposeful in what he writes. Why would it say, and being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? Well, for one, the death of the cross was more severe, more painful, more agonizing. But for another, he gave himself up so they could have their wish. The issue with that is it didn't work. Not only did he come out of the grave, but if they had any supposition that by putting him to death via the cross, that he was in any way or in some way going to be cursed they missed that. And again, for reference and such, you can look at Deuteronomy 21, 23. That's their authority to stone. You look at Galatians 3, 15. That's the New Testament version of being cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And Isaiah 52, 13 for that Old Testament reference as well as 53, 13. I'll give them some insight in that. And here's where they got to. Wherefore, verse 9, meaning because of what we just read, because he was crucified, because he took on the form of a servant, because he was equal with God, because he had the mind that he had, and because we should have the mind as well, backing up verses 4 back to verse 1. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So if their idea was to put him out, to put him down, to put him away, and to remove him from the maps of history and from the annals of all of history, instead of doing that, they achieved something no man could have expected. And that was he was highly exalted. He was highly exalted for that. Now the Greek term here for highly exalted, I won't even try to pronounce but it, it has a prefix in front of it that implies that it is lifted to the top. It's brought all the way to the peak and exceeds that. In the next context, including what's being said here, he high, was highly exalted and given a name which is above every name. What is that name? Right there on the page, the name is Jesus. When did God proclaim that name unto him? Before they were born. 
And we can assume before that the beginning of time even. Always a part of God's plan. Of course, the record we have there in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, he shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus, Jehovah saves, God saves. God is salvation. But I kept digging. And I found this list. And I have never in my life, you can read it right here if you can see it. I've never in my life seen a list like this. This is a little bit unique. Is Jesus ever referred to in Scripture as being any other thing than Jesus? Or as we generally see, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. He was ever referred to as any other thing. Yeah, there are hundreds. Uh, there used to be, and I don't know, I assume you can still get it. There used to be a poster you could buy and hang on your wall. We don't do posters as much as we used to, but uh, when we first got married, we had a lot of posters. Posters was a thing, and it wasn't rock concerts, but you could buy a poster that uh, had the names of God on it. And it was pretty, I mean, it was a beautiful thing, you know. It was all kind of mixed and matched, and you, every time you walked by it, you'd say, wow, I never knew it's called that, and you'd go look it up. And sure enough, it was. This one right here, I just stumbled across this a week or two ago. Uh, somebody put it together on the Internet. Uh, puts them in alphabetical order. So let me read what it says. And you, you can look any of these up. You can pull any of these out. You can directly find this. Uh, starting with A, he was called Adam, the anointed, apostle, author, amen, alpha, and ancient of days. The beginning, the begotten, the beloved, the branch, the bread, the bridegroom, the brighting morning star, the bishop of our souls, the brightness of his father's glory, the captain, the consolation, the chief, our chief cornerstone, counselor, covenant, chosen of God and Christ, the daysman, the deliverer, the day spring, the day star, the door, the desire of nations, the elect, the ensign, the everlasting father, Emmanuel, finisher of our faith, forerunner, friend, first fruits, faithful, witness, foundation of life, God, God's gift, the governor, the guide, the glorious, and on and on, all the way down till you get through the whole list. He had all these names applied to him. But what did it boil down to? Immediate thought is Jesus. Now, just like a good or a bad TV show, that's to be continued. And keep going through that in your mind and ask yourself, is that the name he was given? Is that the name that matters? And more than that, is that going to be the name that matters in eternity? It's a head scratcher. Appreciate your attention.